Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status is the only K-12 data analytics platform designed to turn analysis into engagement. To learn more about how School Status can change your school district, head over to schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, Episode 70, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. What is school like without walls? Jeff Bezos says he's going to create a school where the child is the customer in which school districts have the highest starting salaries. Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we speak with a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, we're making an argument for the liberal arts degree. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by teacher extraordinaire, Lissa Pruitt, and education data expert, Russ Davis of School Status. Lissa, how you doing? I'm great. Russ, how's it going over there? Trying to get in the Halloween spirit, man. Oh, I hear you. Yeah, Halloween. is it's We're really creeping up here. We're like the time where you're supposed to be buying pumpkins and mums, I think. Do you guys like mums? I love mums. They die so fast. Mine die. They do die very quickly, but uh, I would be lying if uh, I said I didn't buy two big pots of mums recently. That's because what you're supposed to do. It's like Christmas poinsettia, Halloween mums. But how do you keep your mums alive, Lissa? You water them. That's it? <laughs> That's all I do. Mine get like brown in like a month. Like basically, they have like the lifespan of a pumpkin, essentially. Hmm. You know, one I year know. I planted my mums in the ground after the season and cut them yeah. level with the ground. I read an article and they came back the next year. In the fall or spring? They came back in the fall of the really? next year. Yeah. Okay, cool. Pro tips from Alyssa. Uh, <laughs> let's see what else you got for us. Let's, let's go ahead and jump into the uh, teacher's lounge. I was reading about this school in Denmark, Copenhagen, Denmark, the, I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, the Hellerup School? Yeah, probably sounds like how you'd say it if you lived in Denmark. It's it's like the flagship school for, um, I think they've sparked a lot of different movements um, around the world in education as far as personalized learning, alternative seating. Um, they're going on their 16th year, this school. Wait, so they're like the alternative seating leaders of the world? Yeah, I think they, yes, I think that's fair to say. I mean, I'm sure there were other schools around their same time that started, but this is the one that re- that I recall. Um, so, so basically, they have, their school has no walls. Like, it's just a big... That's the next thing, like a school with no walls? Yes, and... If you can think, if you've seen the movie Intern, the internship, the I Google, haven't. the Google movie, it looks funny, but I haven't seen it's it. It's so funny. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. I love Vince Vaughn. Anyway, so it's kind of a lot like that. If you can, if you're in your car right now trying to picture what it looks like, but they have a very grand staircase in the center of a room, and that is used for um, you know presentations or as the morning meeting where maybe a teacher is you know, instructing on certain things, but they have bases throughout this giant room. So if you can think of a really large open library, so there are bases all throughout this room where different grades and teachers know that they're going to meet, like over by the couch, over there, over there by the bing bags or whatever. And they kind of have a 15-minute debrief on how the day's going to go. Everybody's, of course, on their own track, which we've done several um, podcast like a personalized learning type yep, track. Yeah. Yep, and um, but 
basically this this story was talking about you know well where are they now how's it going um and and what are the pros and cons of being in a school that really has no rooms what's really neat is they have some walls that will like fold out and in to be able to make some small little intimate spaces um so whoever designed the school really did a great job in the staircase i know they said it has sparked other buildings and other platforms um, because it's just the focal point of the entire room. Um, but one of the cons that they said that, you know, after 16 years of, of being this starter school right. is the technology, balancing the technology. Because when you do the individualized instruction, you don't want it to be solely individualized you know you don't want to isolate students from each other and there's so much technology out there that that allows them to be on their own track and for teachers to plug right in and know where their shortcomings are where they need areas of help but that just only isolates the students even more so the teachers say that's their hardest thing is having to make sure that they don't just squirrel away to little couches and nooks that's their favorite spot um, to try to have more collaborative group projects to bring them all together to where they're stepping I out mean, of their bubble. I would think this also just kills open lectures, right? Like the classroom next door is going to be distracted by a teacher, right? Well, yeah, and there's all different grades. This is K through nine. So there's all different grades that are in this giant room. And they're, they, they say they do many projects, 50-50. You know, there's 50% of the time that it's projects where they're working across grade lines and you know within different groups um, and then sometimes they suspend school like they don't have school for three weeks because they're working on community-based projects where they are split into groups and they have to go you know kind of what is it that show that Trump used to have that they would do the, with the apprentice yeah stuff like that where they have to go do a startup or do things like that and work through things in the real world um, so one of the things that it's a positive is uh, one of the stu- the teachers said no one yells at their students in this school. And when I first read it, I was like, huh? But then I realized, oh, yeah, because everyone's all in one really large open room. And you would know if a teacher was harshly fussing that's over true. the top. I mean, that's kind of everyone cool. would know. So he said that the teachers all had agreed that's not the way they wanted it to be. And if they broke that rule, everyone would know. Russ, what's your take on this? Well, I'm more interested in the logistics of it. Like, how do you keep the kids from yelling? Like, what what grades does this serve? K through nine. K through nine. I cannot imagine a louder group of kids. <laughs> um, how do you keep them quiet or keep them from disturbing each other, I guess? I know. Well, now, if you've seen photos of the place, it is very large. So... You know, if you think of like a grand hall and a convention center and stuff. So, and they do have like partition walls and almost like little cafe nook areas. So you can get your, you know, they have an outside courtyard area. So I would imagine some of those younger grades, they probably get lost real fast just to not bother. Oops. I'm just thinking back to, there was a, uh, a hurricane that came through or tornado one. Nick, do you remember this? Maybe you were reporting on it, but they, uh, Laurel, when they moved to Walmart. that's it. And they moved to a Walmart and I visited a couple of times and they had, you know, built artificial walls and things like that, but it was loud in there. Mm-hmm. 
And um, that so was actually just, that was Lissa's alma mater, but you weren't there, right? Right. Yeah. And what was your mascot? The tornadoes. I always thought that was kind of weird. <laughs> this ironic, one might say. Yes. Um, Why did anyway, you mean that joke? <laughs> it wasn't a joke. I just, I just, I knew you would know. Those are all factual statements. Yes. Believe it or not. Yes. It's like uh, uh, that was Purvis too. I think they were also the tornadoes. Right. So, but anyway, I just, I just, you know, I think it's a great concept. Um, but if you've ever spent any time in one of those large convention centers. And I, I'm, it really comes down to like what kind of flooring and surfaces they use. Because if you ever spend any time in one of those, it doesn't take but about 10 people in there before it sounds like a gaggle of geese. Mm-hmm. So you, I'm just kind of worried about this? the logistics. Do, do either of you see this spreading to the United States and schools? Or this, this to me kind of feels like the Danes are just trying to be different. I don't really see the pros. Uh, maybe I'm, not, I'm missing something. I don't know. Well, they say that it, you know, that it does not work for everyone. In fact, there's even a child in the article who says my brother doesn't does not go to school here anymore. I've been here for eight years and love it. And my brother tried it and he does not like it. He wants a more traditional classroom setting. So he goes to a different school. So, you know, I think it depends if you have somebody that is um, if you have a child that is maybe doesn't need the structure and maybe is bored um, with regular school, you know, maybe this would spark their interest. And I could see as a parent, you would do anything to try to keep your child, um, you know, to have them have a spark for learning. Mm-hmm. But now I will say th- this has already spread to the U.S. So this, this, you know, when we talk about alternative seating and all that, this came well, yeah, from the, them. The seating, so, of course, and the personalized so, learning I get, but we're talking right. no walls. Like it just almost feels like, well, let's not right. have walls because it's, why not? You know. <laughs> well, and it, I mean, it does. It takes a lot of work from the teachers and a lot of control from the students. But that's their motto: is that learning is the responsibility of the students, not the teacher. That's their are motto. These, are these the people that leave their babies out in the cold? <laughs> like, is that the ones that I'm thinking of? Like, they, those are Vikings. No, know. these are the uh, people that deliver welcome boxes to all new oh families. there you go they oh, um sorry i forget what those are called yeah, yeah these, i love these people so watch out <laughs> yeah yeah no no the kids sleep in boxes and it's a rite of passage right. there we, yeah we talked about that now russ i know um you've kind of got something in line of changing schools as well right yeah so um i i love jeff bezos uh simple fact that he's a super super smart guy that has done a lot of work with amazon and has really changed the way has put like a huge dent in the way the whole world operates, right? Can you imagine living your life without Amazon or before Amazon even? And so, you know, he's been handsomely rewarded for that. He's worth about $166 billion, which just so you know, is more than Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg put together. Wow. Um, So he's that rich and he's been criticized a lot. At least he hasn't given publicly. Um, but he hasn't given away a lot of money apparently. And so just recently he started what's called the day one fund and it's divided into a couple different things. But the one that really caught my interest was uh, that he was talking about creating um, a series of, uh, it's called the day one academies fund. And it would be basically setting up preschools in underserved areas. So um, areas obviously with, with high free reduced with, with poor kids basically and it would be uh, Montessori inspired. So kind of letting kids self-guide as opposed to traditional instruction. 
Um, and it would be completely scholarship based. So would be free to go there. But the part that I found really interesting was he said that the child will be the customer. And then he went on to say that Amazon's intense customer obsession culture will will guide these schools. And so I'm I'm interested. I'm intrigued, I guess, is more the word, um, because, you know, we've had a lot of folks that are very, very smart, like Mark Zuckerberg, for instance, who gave one hundred million dollars to to a school district in New Jersey and had nothing to show for it. I'm just interested whenever any of these guys, um, uh, you know, give money to education. And I don't know that they fully understand the problems that plague education, but I'm all for pre-K, right? If it's going to be pre-K and it's going to be for underserved kids, I don't think you can really go wrong with that combination. But I'm just interested to hear how they actually pull off the child will be the customer with an intense customer serve or intense customer obsession. Um, I'm just really interested to see how that works out. In fact, I've got a book at home. Um, it's called Class Clowns. And it's about basically the the tagline of the book. It's how the smartest investors lost billions in education. And it talks about some of these issues as far as investing in education and, and giving direct aid to schools. You really need to know what you're doing or otherwise you're going to draw back a nub. And so if anybody can do it, Jeff Bezos can, right? But I we see this pretty often that folks think, hey, I can shave off a few milliseconds uh, off a search engine or I can ship you know, paper towels to Mississippi, and therefore I'm going to be really good at, at uh, uh, launching a school. And, you know, the kind of the Silicon Valley motto is fail early, fail often, um, and break things, right? Like, like you know, move fast and break things. That's Facebook. That was Facebook's motto. And, um, and unfortunately, when you're dealing with kids, you, you can't really break things and you can't really fail often. Um, so I'm just really interested to see it. I guess I'm skeptical, I think would be the, the words that I would use. What do, what do you guys think about this? It's, it's a lot of money. He's given $2 billion spread across, uh, I think it's four funds. Well, I do think he, he definitely pulled the ear of the right organization to donate to because pre-K is so expensive and it is one of the hugest problems for why we don't have you know, a great literacy in the younger grades because they're not getting exposure when they're young. And so they're coming in kindergarten and to a school and you have some kids that have been in a pre-K program where they've been exposed and you have a lot of children that have not been exposed. And one of the main reasons they have not is because financially the cost of sending someone to a pre-K Head Start kind of program is so expensive. So instead they use somebody in their family or in their neighborhood that just watches the children, but does not expose or teach the children. So he picked, in my opinion, the best direction to go, a very underserved direction. Speaking of dollars and schools, uh, I've got a list for you guys, and it is the top school districts in terms of starting salaries. And this uh, article and, and research, I guess, for lack of a better term, was put together by weareteachers.com. What they did was they looked at the cost of living. Um, there's like a cost of living index, and basically 100 is average. And if you're below 100, that's below average cost of living. If you're above 100, you're above average. And then they looked at the starting salaries of specific school districts. And um, any guess what state has the number one best salary for teachers starting out 
I want to get this right. I don't know. Give me a minute. I could name you like 10 places it's not. <laughs> Virginia. No. Russ, oh. you just want to take a stab at a state? And then I'm, I'm going to get drilled down to a district, but let's see if we can. Um, I would say probably Florida or Georgia, maybe. This one is Texas. Oh. San Antonio, the Southwest Independent School District in San Antonio, Texas, starting salary for a teacher, $50,452. And the cost of living index is a 93.2. So, again, that's below 100. So, oh, um, so what was that? $50,000? Yeah, 50000 Wow. Yeah. So, and, and I've been to San Antonio. It's a cool city. I don't, I've never been to the suburbs of San Antonio, but I like the city. So, that's somewhat attractive. Uh, number two, Brentwood School District in Brentwood, Missouri, starting salary $49,380. Cost of living is like right on target there at that 100 number. Um, I'm not going to go through the whole list. I'll link them in the show notes. But um, Cheyenne, Wyoming has a school district that's in there, um, $48,000. Uh, then you drop to – here's one where a really low cost of living. It's um, Springdale Public Schools in Springdale, Arkansas. Cost of living, 85.2. The salary is 45820 um, Warren, Michigan's on the list. Philadelphia on the list, and that's surprising. Um, Forty-five thousand, and then it says the cost of living index for Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, is a ninety-nine point five, and that surprised me. That it, Have you ever been to Philadelphia? Uh, once in high school to run track. Yeah, it's it's a it's a well, I can tell you it's a cheap place to drink in. I do know that, which yeah. generally indicates that, that you know, you're the, right. I mean, yeah, it, it generally <laughs> indicates what what people are willing to pay. Yeah. Yeah, Across I mean, it's a very much a a, a blue collar town, and um, I don't know. It's it's in the northeast corridor, so you'd assume it's very expensive. But it's been my experience. It's a fun town, and again, my only anecdotal knowledge is uh, is that it's cheap to drink there. So, um, last one I'll tell you about coming in on the list that's closest to us is number nine, St. Tammany Parish Public Schools, Covington, Louisiana. That's near New Orleans, for those that don't Mm -hmm. know. Um, Starting salary, $44,284, and the cost of living index is a 102.3. Wow. uh, So dollars and college. We're going to shift that way a little bit. Russ, you and I, we often um, have been known on this show to um, knock the liberal arts degree, not so much in the sense that as a degree, (laughs) but as the earning potential once you have the degree, you're paying off that loan, right? Am I wrong about that? I, I would think that's a fair assertion. It's often the punchline of many of my jokes. Yeah, so something about underwater basket weaving always seems yes, to Yes, I, I do remember uh, <laughs> some salient details may be missing, but I do remember that. So Dr. A.J. Ogilvie out of the University of Southern California actually wrote a research paper on just this, on making the case for the liberal arts degree. Oh. And he has a very effective argument. And uh, we interviewed him for the show. I like it. Fantastic. Our guest in today's Bright Ideas segment teaches business writing and communication at the University of Southern California. Dr. A.J. Ogilvie is going to explain why a liberal arts degree is so important. It just may need a slight tweaking and rebranding. A.J., welcome back to the show. Thanks very much, Nick. I say welcome back because if anybody missed last week's episode, you were on with us. Uh, we were talking about how students uh, can make that transfer from high school or the K through 12 system into uh, the university system with writing. If anyone wants to hear that, be sure to kind of jump back and uh, check out that episode. But today uh, I'm bringing you on because I was doing some research for last week's show and I realized that you had written this really incredible article about the liberal arts program, the value of it. And I will admittedly say I have been critical on the show and, and my co-host Russ has as well about the value of a liberal arts degree. And and what I mean by that is, 
you know, we worry that sometimes people may go to school for, say, something like English or philosophy. And then you kind of worry about, well, how do I earn money with that degree? But you are here to explain to me why I'm wrong, right? <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah. So, no. This is this is uh, this is definitely along those lines, and I think um, uh, these are. I, I too am critical of of how we talk about and, and think about um, the liberal arts, and I think um, a good liberal arts thinker would would it encourage critic being critical about the liberal arts that this is probably a good point and and so before we jump into what those your reasoning is behind that let's first define together and, and you do this in your research paper and I'll link to it in the show notes but um, let's define what we were talking about when we we're talking about liberal arts because that can be a broad term sure and um, what I mean by liberal arts is um, I'll, I'll be I'll give a, a specific model is that um, you would major in a particular uh, discipline. Uh, it could be business, it, 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 which is not considered like a, a classic liberal arts um, discipline. But so you you could be a business major, but you your overall experience is a liberal arts experience in that you're a business major, but you also will take classes across different disciplines and domains. So you could take um, a sociology course, you'll take an anthropology course, you could take a cultural studies course, um, a language course. And so uh, I think the key aspect of uh, when I talk about the liberal arts education is that um, it involves a student having one major, but also taking classes across different domains. And the, 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 the goal is that you're you experience um, different kinds of knowledges and different kinds of ways of thinking about uh, human phenomena and, and the world. And you you open up in your paper, and you kind of already ha- have mentioned this, that you admit that the liberal arts degree is under fire, correct? Absolutely. Um, and, and what do you think the main reason is? Well, I think that um, I, there's multiple diagnoses of this. And I, I, so just one that I, I might throw out is that um, in general, universities and colleges, especially their curriculum, uh, is they they're conservative in the sense that they they're they don't really evolve quickly. Um, or and when we when I say quickly, like the the way we think about things in sort of like I guess we would say the private or the you know the commercial sector. That um, you know I've been involved in a couple curriculum redesigns and. These can uh, to to change the curriculum of a university uh, is a significant significant effort and can take, um, you know, ten years, uh, five wow. years, yeah. And and you know when you tell that to someone outside of academia or something, they say, well, why does it take so long? And and maybe there's good reasons for that. That you know that that the reasons why colleges and universities have endured is because they've stuck to what they do really well. But I do think that um, post 2008, uh, the recession and um, a, a significant reason is the cost of college these days that people have really that we've become the question of what, what's the value of college has become much sharper and, and much more significant. And I think we see kind of, you know, you'll see a New York Times story of like a, an English major graduating with $100,000 worth of debt, you know, and, right. And, and these are um, these kind of amplify uh, and, and reveal like these larger issues going on. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but as I read through your paper, um, 
I, I interpret it like this. I, I almost interpreted that you're suggesting, and you're not saying you have all the answers, but you're suggesting that if we looked at the liberal arts as rather than just liberal arts, and instead we almost redefined it as we're giving people the education and the tools to be a translator of language in the workplace, there might be a lot more value to it. Yeah. So my idea is that we'll work backwards, right? Let's maybe we'll work backwards from what does the world look like right now? And, um, or what, what is it like to work in 2018 and what kinds of knowledges and abilities and skills are valuable? And, um, uh, I often think of something like Facebook, for example. So, um, the, the knowledge that developed Facebook was technical knowledge, like computer science knowledge. Um, but currently, you know, at the top levels at Facebook, they're not using technical knowledge anymore that they might've learned in college. They're not coding anymore. What right. they're using is pe- people knowledge. Um, and so w- some of the challenges that, you know, places like Google and Facebook are facing are, are human centered challenges on how people think about privacy, about how different groups of people think about what is what is moral, what is right and wrong. And so what I'm getting at is that if you wanted to be, if you're at Facebook right now or Google or a tech company or at a lot of places, that the kinds of knowledge that you need right now is not is not something that you'll necessarily find in a textbook. It's it's partly experience, but it's partly um, you need to be kind of like translating uh, what your company does, uh, for, for humans and uh, like that are your customers, but, or your clients or your stakeholders, but also people outside of that. Um, another example, when Amazon started, it it was an online bookseller and currently it's a TV studio. Um, it's a, uh, space exploration company, and so what I'm what I think is interesting is that as Amazon evolved, someone had to translate how Amazon how do you move from being a online bookseller to being a TV studio? And you have to translate some things from what you were to to the new this new domain. And in a liberal arts school, um, in a liberal arts education, you're constantly taking classes across different domains and Admittedly, one of the things that I believe colleges and universities could do better is um, helping students make sense of what they're learning. So, like you, 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 you were you took a liberal arts education, and do you remember taking classes, you know, across all these different disciplines? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, from and, you know different languages to, I mean, really, really everything. Of course, I took the the five year track, and I I switched my major a couple times, so it's all kind of a blur. But yes, yeah, and I wonder like. I mean, I'm kind of setting you up a little bit maybe, but I wonder what if you had taken a class that said, um, that kind of like tried to organize all of those experiences um, and said, well, what, what do I know now as a result of taking a class in French and a class in history? Um, what, are, what are some things that, what are some general principles or like big ideas that we learn in each of those classes uh, that apply across all of them? Yeah, I mean, marketing stands out to me. I end up taking a marketing course and the whole like 80-20 principle and things like that seems to apply just about wherever I look and, and different different tools that I've used learned there. Yeah, and I, and I think the other the other big argument um, that I would make about kind of being a translator is that like one under, often under-discussed aspect of being a translator is that you're, you have to be really open to learning. 
and and she needs to understand how she learns things. And I'd argue that, you know, so when you take a class in French, you need to learn about yourself as a learner of a language. Um, Am I learning at a rate that I think I should be? Or what do I, what do I, how is, how am I learning in the best way? And what we know, and this is massive right now in the, in the workforce is that many organizations and companies, they want people who are really good learners. Um, they want people who aren't afraid of, of confronting new technologies and new kinds of knowledge that, that, you know, that they've never seen before. The word, the word translator, I mean, that, that kind of your, your entire research seems to kind of revolve around that word. Um, and I feel like it's kind of key. So let's drill down there a little bit more. Yeah. And if, if I'm understanding it right, as I read through your work, um, you highlighted as an example, no child left behind, which everyone who listens to this podcast has a very clear understanding what no child left behind was. But, you know, when it was passed through back during the Bush administration, um, you talk about how the language no child left behind was really crucial to that bill getting passed, correct? Yes. And so that's the other aspect of the the language centric dimension of being a translator is really having a feel for how language works and really having an understanding of how do I arrange um, how do I arrange particular words, ideas, and concepts so that my user or my reader can do something with that that language. And um, in the article, I talk about framing, and framing is a theory that um, comes out of a lot of different places. But George Lakoff is famous for it, and he's a um, a professor out of Berkeley. And the idea is that I think. Um, I think what we would do in a liberal arts education or what we could do better is center the way language operates in different domains. And so what I'm kind of getting at is like, I'll I'll crudely call it like, how do we, how do you sell your ideas? And um, so the average person coming out of college today will change jobs every three years. So one argument I make is how are we helping students learn to move across these different um, these different jobs and these different industries, like, and how are we helping them learn to use language to translate their previous experience and abilities to sell that, to sell that experience and ability to a new, uh, employee, or I'm sorry, a new employer or a new field. And, um, at the core is this idea of like thinking deeply about how words work and how, um, how we arrange ideas. And I think a liberal arts education probably could do this better. But across history, like if you take a history course or um, if you take a sociology course, uh, a key part of that will be um, studying how in those domains language works uh, to, to, to create meaning for people. And, and so if I understand right with the, the no child left behind thing, I want to make sure our listening oh, yeah. audience understands that you were not necessarily applauding the legislation as much as you were, I think, applauding the creativity of, of naming it no child left behind. Correct. Yeah. Or um, just describing it uh, and saying, you know, framing is really powerful. And my, I, I talk about the example of no child left behind as a way of pointing to how framing works in the political arena. And my argument, in a sense, to, to advocates of the liberal arts is that we need to we need to think about framing, like how are we framing 
the liberal arts? How are we persuading people that the liberal arts is valuable? And, and I think one tool we could use is framing. And so No Child Left Behind is frames this educational, massive educational reform as a, essentially like education is a, a battle, right, or, or war. And then what's activated around that idea is there's good and there's good and bad in war and um, you know the the original phrase is no man left behind and that's that's an injured man and um, there's a lot of heroism and so essentially like these ling- this language uh, choices underneath little child left behind are, are trying to set people up to think about this reform act as as a version of heroism and in, in the context of war makes it hard um, to vote against it does because you yes i want to i've you know i i want to leave children behind no you know no uh, no one wants to say that and so so my understanding you right by saying like this that type of command of language uh command of being a translator is is just one example of a skill that you, people should be getting and using when you get a liberal arts degree. Exactly, and 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 you're you're actually making my article better um, in, in a way. <laughs> no, really, you are. These questions are really good. Is like that. I think that some students develop this naturally, like this idea of that language matters. So, for example, in history. You know, one of the ideas of taking a history course is not not just to learn, especially in college, is, is not to learn that, you know, something happened in 1856 and something happened in 1857. And, you know, like, it's more that history is a is essentially um, a series of competing of competing stories about the past. And it can serve as a compass in the future, I guess. Right. Well, yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, how the way we tell the story of the past serves a particular purpose in the future. Um, so, you know, like any, like anytime we talk about any current political issue, we often say, well, a similar thing happened in the past. And then there's usually a debate about that thing that happened in the past. Mm -hmm. And so a historian is trying to figure out, well, how am I going to tell the story in a way that, you know, conveys my view of, of what actually happened? Okay. So in the liberal arts education, there's usually a writing course and, and sometimes it's called rhetoric. And maybe, maybe one idea is that, to further um, increase this notion of translator as a as something that someone becomes from taking the liberal arts is you you know you have this writing course, but you also have another class on um, that could be the rhetoric of history or the rhetoric of sociology or just with a with a with a more um, emphasis on how like language and meaning work it work in these disciplines. But the other thing is just the experience of writing. And communicating in these different domains that do you, do you remember writing to a history professor and then maybe having to like change change course and then okay now this is like i'm writing for a marketing professor or now i'm writing for a you know a sociology yeah, audience professor. yeah exactly and so you know that that idea of if you're just stuck in one domain for four years that you're not you're not necessarily learning to to write for different kinds of people who have different needs and expectations. And so I, I don't want to get ahead of you and your thoughts, you know, here, please but it, 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 it almost, it almost sounds like if, if, if you would, um, you know, you could get this degree rather than a liberal arts degree. I am a translator. I, I have a translator's degree. So <laughs> it might be more appealing to the tech company, uh, you know, to say, you know, hire me as your translator. I understand 
you know, language and how to communicate and so forth. I mean, is that kind of what you're going for? Are you, are you suggesting maybe we need to, to look at liberal arts differently and possibly rebrand it? Well, I, I don't know. This is a really good question. And I don't know if it's necessarily like, you know, I, I think that there are likely other, other frames that can be used. Um, in the article, I talk about how like we often say, Oh, the liberal arts does, you know, creates critical thinkers and, but I, 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 like, I don't necessarily know if that's an effective frame anymore. And then, or, or for as many audiences as, as possible. Um, I also talk about how, you know, a central reason that many people go to colleges is an economic purpose. Like I, you know, I'm going to do this for four years and then afterwards I'm, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, survive. I'm going to make money and pay my rent or, you know, and so I guess like I think partly the liberal arts one of the challenges is is developing an argument that that is framed around that idea that I'm you know I'm here to to ultimately develop a successful career. Um so to call it like the translator degree um I'm not sure, you know, one of the things I always say to engineering students is uh, and it's not my own line is um if you don't write well as an engineer, you will work for an engineer that does. Um, that, that's a good line. That's yeah. Good line. yeah. And so the idea is that the people who move up and the people who develop like management or leadership or the people who start companies are the people who really know how to use language. Um, there's, you know, another argument I make is that there's no, there's no such thing as like a thought leader in any domain, whether it's like tech or uh, business or law um, whatever it may be that isn't a writer. And so, um, or, or isn't a good communicator. And so within like what I would make an argument to someone is that if you, if you want to be successful in any field, you will need to know how to communicate within that field. Well, so a general, like there actually are, um, more and more, there are degrees that are called uh, a professional writing major. Or there are minors around like professional writing and, um, or there's technical writing. And, um, so I think those are like really great starts and, but those are like kind of particular positions in, in those, in those fields, a general translator degree. I, I'm not sure I'd have to think about it more, but, um, you know, one of the arguments that people often make about the liberal arts is that it, it like people from the liberal arts are good, are, are better communicators. Um, and maybe my argument is like, how do we make that more visible? You know, there back in, um, I think a 2015 issue of Forbes magazine, there was a, an article, uh, and it was titled that useless liberal arts degree has become tech's hottest ticket. And, and I think it's very much in line with kind of what you're talking about. Um, and, and it talks about specifically they use Slack technologies, which is, um, uh, for a lot of people who don't know what Slack is, it's basically like the business's new version of email and communication and, and tons of large companies are using it, but they take a deep dive into how the company Slack is, is actually looking for exactly what you're talking about are these, these people with these liberal arts degrees that are good communicators. So, um, you know, I, I'll say this, I, I, while I have knocked the liberal arts in the sense of like, you know, why would you go to school and take on that big loan? Um, if you know, you, you don't have as much ability to go to different businesses. Um, you know, why do that? But I think you make a really good point in the sense that maybe businesses are looking for these people. Yes. And you know, I, I know the article, the Forbes article you're referring to. And, um, I think the founder, the CEO of Slack, 
um, either was a philosophy undergrad or and or has a master's in philosophy. I think you're right. And says that I think he says daily that he's drawing on um, you know some of those those ideas. And the other component of this, I think that we're getting at is that there's at a college and university or like a, a four year experience at college, there's the there's the curriculum part. And then there's that other part that's, what am I going to do after this? <laughs> and so like, this is kind of the career center things, but like career advising. And I think that this is another part of the way we should think about the liberal arts, because I think I know that you can be an English major or a French major, and you can go work at a tech firm. Um, you will need to do certain things, though, to make that happen. You'll need to have an internship or you'll need to make the case to these these companies if you wanted to do that. Um, so I think uh, another another goal of college is helping students learn to talk about themselves um, in ways that are persuasive. Yeah, I imagine you're probably right there. And and what are you hearing? Like as a university professor, do you all have the opportunity to talk to businesses and, and what they're looking for in students? It's interesting that you say that because I am, um, I am active. I, I've recently been, I've been reaching out to businesses and I go talk to them about, well, what, what kinds of thinking are you looking for and what do you find to be valuable? Um, and I spoke recently with a partner at, uh, one of the top consulting firms and he said, my people can't write, you know, it takes, he says it takes a couple of years for people to get where I want them to be with writing. Um, and then I talked to another partner at one of the big four accounting firms and he said, writing is everything. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I think that the challenge is that we do hear from employers saying we want, you know, to me, I think what they really want or a key thing that I hear is like, they want people who can learn, you know, they want people who can adapt and, um, they want people who can communicate. Um, and so that that's the need from the employer side and what we have to have students do on their, well, help them develop is the ability to, to speak to those needs. Well, uh, Dr. AJ Ogilvie with the uh, university of Southern California, again, we, we appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk about this. It's a really fascinating topic and, uh, I will link to your work in our show notes. If anybody wants to, to track that down. Um, I said this in the last show, but I want to give you an opportunity again. How can somebody get in touch with you if they have any questions? Yep. They can email me at um, aogilvy, so it's A-O-G-I-L-V, as in Victor, I-E, at usc.edu. And I'd, um, I'm really open and love to hear other people's ideas about, about this uh, topic. Awesome. Thanks so much. And again, uh, thank you for taking the time to chat with us. I really enjoyed it, Nick. Thank you very much. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. We want to hear from you. So if you want to send us an idea or a comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So if you like what you heard today, please be sure and hit that subscribe button. And we'd also love it if you'd leave us a five-star review. Don't forget you can connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash classdismissedpodcast or on Twitter. Just search for us by typing in Class Dismiss. On behalf of Russ with School Status and Lissa representing all the teachers out there, I'm Nick Ortega and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.
Thank you.